Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 19 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. Thanks for joining us today. This week, we'll be having a two-part conversation with Jelana Goebel, author of the new book, A Love-Stretched Life. May is Foster Care Awareness and Support Month. Jelana Goebel is a speaker, author, and advocate. She holds a master's degree in teaching. Together with her husband, Luke, she parents five children, ranging from preteen to young adult. Jelana is the founder of an unprecedented initiative that has turned into a statewide movement called Every Child Oregon. In 2019, she published No Sugar Coating, a book with practical suggestions and insight for prospective foster parents. She is passionate about getting the faith community, as well as the community at large, to link arms with the state's overburdened child welfare system to uplift vulnerable children in foster care and those who serve them. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6, verse 8. Welcome to this episode of FASD Hope. It is May. It is Foster Care Awareness, and I like to say Foster Care Support Month. And I am speaking with an amazing, amazing woman, mama, wife, sister in Christ. I am just so honored to know today's guest and to share her latest latest creation, which is her new book, her upcoming book, A Love Stretched Life, after this lengthy introduction. And we've been talking for about a half hour before we even started recording. I am thrilled to welcome to today's show, Jelana Goebel. Jelana, welcome to FASD Hope. Thanks, Natalie. I'm so glad to be with you. I am just so, so excited about this conversation because I know it will bless so many. And I know so many people will just dive into your book the way I did. Um, So let's start from the beginning. That's a good place to start. Uh, Jelana, can you just share a little bit about your family's journey? I would love to. Well, there are five remarkable kids who call me mom, four of whom are living underneath the roof of my home. My husband, Luke, and I uh, asked the very simple question, Natalie, when we got off the plane in New York after working at a stint, uh, working at a Guatemalan orphanage for a stint of time, and just said, like, where are the vulnerable children here? And it was a super simple question. Um, The answer led us to foster care. At that time, like I didn't grow up having foster parenting be a part of my story. I didn't know to my knowledge, like anyone impacted by foster care. Although of course 
there were, I just wasn't aware. Um, and we became foster parents at the ripe old age of 25 with exactly zero parenting experience. <laughs> Some, somehow people were like, you know what, you'd be perfect. Not only perfect for foster parenting, but perfect for like our therapeutic foster care program, which is when, you know, uh, trauma manifests in the highest behavioral needs. And so, um, we, that is where we met Royal, who we parented, uh, his first grade year. Then we lost touch with him for 14 years and reconnected with him as a 19 year old young man. He's about to be 25. So even though we have no legal connection, we, he calls me mom and I refer to him as the son of my heart and are very much journeying alongside him. And that whole story of like how we found each other and, and what that, that journey has been like is, is told in a love stretch life. Um, my other kids underneath the roof of my home range in age from 10 to 17. I have two biological daughters who are 17 and 15, and I have two boys who are unrelated to one another that I fostered and then later adopted. It is my youngest son, Charlie, who's 10, who has FASD. And reading your story, first of all, when I got to the chapter about when Royal reunited with you both, oh my goodness, I cried. Because it was such a story. It, it was such a redemption story. It was such a story of how you planted the seed in Royal. And he remembered so much of that love throughout his hard life and how he, you know, <laughs> that one part where he says, you know, you're my favorite mom. You're, you're the mom who took care of me the best. And, um, oh my goodness, that just, Again, so many parts of your book, you share how love is something we plant in our children, um, whether they be by birth, by by foster, by adoption, and it can take years for that seed to grow. But once you see it, it's so beautiful. You know, I'm, yeah, it, it, I think it's been so astounding for me to kind of get a front row seat to witness this because I think, you know, being in the foster care and adoption world for a long time, you know, the, the metaphor of like seeds being planted is a pretty common one. And I think most of us, if we're being honest with ourselves can be like, are these seeds being planted? Like, is anything going to bloom from this seed right here? And I think for me, um, having Royal be able to articulate in his own words, as a young man, like he didn't have a choice when he was placed with me in foster care. He certainly has a choice as a young adult who he's connecting with and when and how and all those things. So I think for me, it was like, oh, wow, you know, that's not just like a, a cheesy cliche to, to try to grab onto. Like, I felt like that was really such a lesson for me as is often the case, right, Natalie, like we're trying to pour into our kids and then our kids are like schooling us about like what's important in life in so many ways. Um, but it, that was, that has been a wild journey to just be able to hear in his own words and, um, not kind of presuppose, but I think the, the, you know, the line is between seeds planted and blooming, but be able to hear it from him has been one of the biggest blessings in my life. And again, I'm going to sing so many praises about your book because you share just so many different aspects of your journey. When you and your husband were in Guatemala, when, um, you know, when you first moved and, and Royal and, and his brother's story, you're building your family story, your foster story. There are so many 
wonderful, I guess, just vignettes that you share about your life as a foster mom, as a biological mom, as an adoptive mom. And um, before we start talking, I promise listeners that we're going to get to this interview, but before we start talking, I really feel such a connection with you, Jelana, because you share this in your book and I'm going to read the excerpt in a little bit, but you really share how this journey, this journey of fostering, of adoption, of parenting a child with an FASD, it is a very messy, gritty journey. And I really pray that I'm transparent, you know, with our listeners that yes, we are still, there's still some days that I, I pray our son doesn't end up in jail or, or, Mm -hmm. you know, having a premature death. And I know you share that in your book about, you know, experiences you've gone through. So I just feel that connection with you that, um, that you are, this is real. This This is is real. real. It's messy. It's real. However, there are, and you, and I know, I know you share this and we share this on our podcast there are these beautiful moments in that brokenness mm-hmm. that if we can stop and, and I think it was something your husband said that if we can stop and just look at that moment, yes, yes, it was. And I know, I know what part two, I'm not going to give it away. I want readers to get that part, <laughs> but if we can stop in that brokenness and that messiness for that one moment and savor that moment. And that's something our, my husband and I like to say, it's actually mm-hmm. on our website. Mm-hmm. You savor the moment in the messiness. Absolutely, Natalie. And I feel like part of, part of the privilege of raising Charlie is to celebrate and notice and pay attention to things that honestly I took as like low level expectations, um, previously, you know, so we're high-fiving over staying in the car with our seatbelt. We are like, you know, doing a gold star for like, not swearing at the bus driver. (laughs) We are, you know, like all, all the things that it was kind of like, well, why would you, you know, that that's just, you know, should be the expectation. Oh no, no, we are celebrating it all because it's not until you realize (laughs) that every single aspect is a struggle, um, that you can, you know, be really begin to celebrate the things and I think it's given me a new lens, right? That, that, that it's such a small shift, but it's a huge shift. I mean, what's more, what's bigger than kind of having an awareness for the smallest things, you know, I feel like there's so much goodness in that. Um, and I would have missed it without parenting Charlie, although it comes with a lot of other stuff as you and I both know. So there are days when it's like, I would rather not be appreciative of the little things and just skip, skip on to the big things being smooth. Okay. Yes. Yes. And again, we need to be honest on this journey too. And, and, and we are, and again, I feel like just for all you listening, I, I feel just such an instant connection with Jelana. I mean, just reading her book and, you know, messaging her through Instagram and everything. I was just like, oh yes. Yeah. We, we could hang in real time (laughs) and we should, and we will. Yes, yes, yes. And we will. So before we talk about your wonderful book, which is being released next month in June, um, let's talk about the amazing, amazing initiative that you started, which I pray every state catches on. And I know you, you talk about it more in your book, but let's talk about every child Oregon, because I I've been inside DHHS buildings and just, I've seen the starkness. 
I've mm-hmm. seen the, you know, government buildings are, you know, whether they be county, state or federal, they're not, they don't they're sterile. Exactly. They're sterile. And they yeah. don't scream, Hey, let's have family reunification. They scream, okay, sit here while you wait for your injection or something, honestly. So let's talk about Every Child Oregon because I pray this catches on everywhere. Thank you. Um, So 10 years ago, I was talking with my trusted certifier and I know every state has a different term, but a certifier is just someone who comes every 180 days and make sure I have a fire extinguisher and all the things. And I was just asking her like, what happens when kids have been removed from their homes for whatever situation and are waiting in a government office um, for what's going to happen next, whether going to a relative or going to a stranger foster family. And, um, she just painted this picture of scrambling each and every time. And as she was talking, it's like, oh my gosh, this, this whole, uh, idea of kids entering foster care is just so completely overwhelming, but here is a tangible step of offering something consistent that caseworkers can always count on that, you know, when a child is sitting in their cubicle, um, they don't need to like dig in their own pockets and run that child through McDonald's. Like there is something there that has been curated for that child. And so that's where the idea of welcome boxes came in. Um, it's, it's really not a super difficult concept. It's basically like taking a, uh, we, I took a photo, uh, photo box that you can get at a craft store on the lid of every box, a community member would write uh, an affirmation. Like you are worthy. Um, you are special. You are important. Just messages that kids in foster care don't often hear. And then the back box is filled with healthy snacks, art supplies, flashlight for that first night, wherever they are hygiene items, but really it's the focus is what can be done to occupy that child. And I think the psychological importance of a child saying, Oh my gosh, like, I don't know. I'm wide-eyed right now. I, I just got this, this traumatic situation just happened and I don't know where I'm going, but I know that everything in this box is brand new. It's been created for me and it's mine and it's going with me. Um, is important. And that little box is what has spurred on this statewide movement. And it is, it is such a, I feel like it's a mustard seed story that honestly I've, I've been living. It's, uh, it's really just a story of paying attention and asking one question. And then that question leading to something else and leading to something else and leading to something else. Like as you shared, you know, welcome boxes first, my church, uh, did it. I got a grant from my church to, to start, uh, putting cabinets in different, uh, child welfare offices. And then people were, you know, stocking them according to the age and gender of the child. And it became something that, that caseworkers could count on. And then it became like, okay, well, what else, what, what other needs, you know, are there? And like you said, the offices are very dismal and depressing. And that felt like an opportunity for the community at large to step in. And when I say community, Natalie, I'm talking about all different sectors of community working together, people of faith, people of the common good. So, you know, faith communities and business communities and individuals and families coming from all sorts of backgrounds saying, Hey, you know, we might not be aligned on everything, but we can align ourselves behind standing with vulnerable children. And we don't want to abdicate our responsibility that, you know, caring for these children is just for somebody that's wearing a government badge, clocking in and out of a government agency from nine to five. Like there is a role for us to play. And that is really the heartbeat with which every child organ was 
founded. I won't get into all the specifics, but your listeners are welcome to, to check us out um, at everychildorgan.com. Uh, org, sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, it has led to this community mobilization where in, you know, every county in Oregon, we have, um, we have a, an iteration of every child happening there. And it's, it's stemmed from this welcome box and has gone to so many more things. I mean, foster care recruitment and foster care awareness and, and education and tangible goods. And we're really trying to change the narrative, Natalie, that, that it's not just like become a foster parent or do nothing. Those are choice A and B, you know, like there is such a, a large on-ramp of this middle ground that I think in many places is largely untapped. And so that's really the sweet spot of every child is to say, not everyone is called to be a foster parent. Now with that caveat, I would certainly say it's certainly for more people than are currently doing it because there's just such a depressing math equation. However, um, that's not the focus. The focus is really like, what is yours to do? And here are some options as you discern what's yours to do. So that's the heartbeat of every child organ. I'm still really privileged to be a part of the team. It is and leaders that are deciding, you know, we're going to shoulder in and lean in and not away. Um, and it's, it's had a huge impact. And now we've been able to expand to not just serving kids in foster care, but also trying to offer hospitality to state workers. It's not always the most popular thing. We know that not every single person is, is, um, you know, maybe the most deserving of the hospitality, but in whole, when we look at their job, their very thankless job, they are, you know, like it, so our, as a community, we're offering hospitality, we're offering hospitality to foster families. And we have recently expanded to offer like, uh, tangible goods also to biological families that are reunifying with their children. So there's just so many different facets of what every child organ does, but really our heartbeat is we are with you. We are with you caseworker. We are with you child and foster care. We are with you foster family. We are with you biological family. Um, yeah, we stand with you. Amazing. Amazing. And reading about how every child Oregon started just gave me goosebumps and, and hearing how your daughters helped you, you know, start making those welcome boxes. So I'm known for my call to actions on our podcast, and this is a call to action. Okay. So whoever's listening needs to share this episode with somebody who's in a position that can make this program national. I want to see every child in every state because we know that, again, DHS workers are overstretched, underpaid, yes, overwhelmed. Yes. I've had DHS social workers on our podcast who have shared that you know, people hate us and mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> just, and, and we don't get support and we don't learn about things like FASD. So, yes. you know, they're not the bad guy, you know, no. what, no. what is needed is this systemic addressing of caring for foster children, caring for foster parents, caring for biological families, caring for the workers. So this is a call to action. Whoever's listening, if you know somebody that can help us get every child, let's make this a movement to get it into every single state, because we know that this is systemic. And the first thing that comes to mind too, when I hear this, so, so whether you're a community member, whether you're an organization, whether you're a nonprofit, the first thing that comes to mind 
when I read about every child, it was thinking, this is the foster care equivalent of Operation Christmas Child. It really is. You are absolutely right. It and I really was al- almost tempted to say that, you know, my welcome box <laughs> idea is not so original people, you know, like, but um, it, it really is the, uh, it's the foster care equivalent of that and it is needed. So let's make this like operation Christmas child where that's international. Let's make this, let's start national and go bigger. I mean, so putting that out there and of course we will list the links for every child not only in uh, today's program notes, but as well as in our uh, social media posts uh, for this week. So Jelana, I just, I'm so thankful you, you started that movement because. Um, well, it, Natalie, so I mean, I thank you. I, I appreciate the kind words again. I, I think it's just been astounding to see how many people have like leaned in and also um you know, this was not my vision. It would be a total lie if I was like, you know what, one day, 10 years ago, I dreamed like, how about I create a statewide movement? Like, no, there's been no I in it. First of all, it's just kind of been this humble idea that other people have taken and run with. And really my idea was like for a box. And then it was kind of just doing the next right thing of like, okay. And now there's this amount of publicity. And now we're sitting at the table with state child welfare workers asking, what do you need? And now we're doing these makeovers to communicate, you know, to transform these places that were uh, sterile, like we talked about into places that communicate dignity and worth. And now we're talking about, you know, all these other things. So it's really just been this, this crazy journey of just seeing this one thing tip into a movement. And it's honestly been such an honor of my life to just still, still be a part of it and to see it unfold. Well, this will not be the last we hear of every child. We will be posting updates. We will be posting again, more call to actions. I love it. And again, I'm so, so very thankful that you helped plant again, plant the seed. It's not a cliche. It's a real thing. So, so let's talk about this wonderful, wonderful book. And when it's published, so we're, we're airing this episode a few weeks before uh, Jelana's book will be published on June 7th. Once the book is published, you'll be able to, we'll put a link on FASD Hope under our resources page so that you can go directly to uh, Jelana's either website or where you can purchase this book. Um, but we, I consider this book to be a resource. I really do. I I really think not only is it you pouring your heart out in your journey and you sharing so many hard moments, so many beautiful moments, but I also, I love one of the many things I love about your book is throughout the book, you educate your readers about not only foster care, not only uh, trauma, but especially FASD which again, the, the more books and you are your facts. And I, you know, I know you checked your facts and I know, you know what you're talking about because I'm reading like, yep, she knows it. She gets it. Yep. And I love that. So not only are you taking your reader on a journey through your life, through your life as, as a foster mom and an an adoptive mom, but also you are taking your reader through education about foster care, about FASD. So um, let's talk about the why behind you writing A Love Stretch Life and who is your intended audience? Oh my gosh, so many things to respond to. Well, first of all, I want to let your um, listeners know that 
the a love stretch life is available for pre-order actually right now. So that's exciting. So if, if somebody were to pre-order, they would actually get the book when it's released on June 7th. Um, and I too was like, so grateful to Tyndale publishing. They have been nothing but amazing in every way to work with. And I felt so grateful, um, for the chance to have some FASD education, um, kind of, just intertwined in, in our story. And I felt that was really, really important to me in writing a love stretch life. I feel like if um, you asked who the, you know, the book is really for, and honestly, the book, it's a natural audience with foster and adoptive parents. It's a natural audience with somebody engaging FASD. I think though, I hope that the book even has a little bit of a higher audience for anybody that can really relate to what it's like to be living out a story where your lived reality is kind of different than your preconceived notions. I think in many ways, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us have some example of kind of standing at the divide and looking in the canyon of like, ooh, this isn't how I thought it was going to go when I envisioned parenthood. And I wrote it, you know, as, as a way to kind of make sense of my, uh, of my own journey, really, like we often do, right. It's like, we're writing for ourselves and we hope it resonates with, with others. Um, but I really hope that this book makes people feel more seen and less lonely wherever life finds them. That's really the audience for a love stretch life. And I definitely can say that reading this book, you do feel less isolated and more embraced. You really do. You, you just, this book, you, your writing style, Jelana, and just your, your being vulnerable really is, I want to say it's comforting, you know, mm-hmm. to, to those of us on this road and to, to those many, many scores of families that we know are, they're not being heard you know, this, this book really reaches. And again, not only will it address, you know, that directly with those, you know, like us who are in this, in this trench, as I I say, we're in the trenches, but for families and for educators and people who just want to understand more about the world of foster care and about the world of trauma and FASD. So I, I just, I really appreciate that. So Jelana, in a love stretch life. You are candid about what you've learned about FASD. You are honest about the lived experience you have as a parent, and you are spot on with your facts and with uh, just sharing uh, educational points about FASD. What have you learned about FASD and how it's impacted your family that you want our listeners to know? Honestly, Natalie, I didn't know a thing about FASD for being a foster parent for so many years. I I can't recall a single training about it. I vaguely remember drugs and alcohol being lumped together in one kind of insufficient session on like what you may be dealing with. Um, You know, it really wasn't until Charlie, well, first of all, Charlie came to our family through a call asking if we could, you know, pick up a baby for the weekend for 48 hours, which, you know, you can do anything for two days. And we said yes. And much to our delight, you know, through a series of circumstances, he ended up staying. Um, But we just had no idea really about, about 
FASD anything. I mean, looking back, it's so interesting, right? You can like kind of see the signs of like, oh, wow. Like he never, ever slept for more than two hours at a time. He always wanted to be held. He was incredibly fussy. He was late to get his teeth, late to talk, late to walk. I mean, looking back, but then, you know, I was coming to all these specialists, Natalie, with this like, Hey, something seems a little off here. I parented three other children. Like this is different. And I think so oftentimes those global developmental delays are right on the line. Right. And that's so tricky because unless something's super obvious, it's right on the line is like, well, there's a, you know, considering, you know, he, he's coming out of a background of trauma, let's kind of wait and see. And so it was wait and see, wait and see, wait and see. And it wasn't until I read Diane Malbin's Trying Differently Rather Than Harder that all these other slew of diagnoses that Charlie had received, six or seven different diagnoses, that all were true. Like it was like a piece of the puzzle. And I was like, this is true, but this isn't the whole thing. It felt like reading that book, a light bulb went off and I was like, oh, I understand the landscape now. And and I'm going to uh, be tenacious with advocating for a diagnosis now because I know what that will mean for our family. And I, I honestly encourage a lot of families to be, to be bold because if I were still waiting for a doctor or a specialist to come and say, you know what, Jelana, this is your son has this. I would, I'm confident that I would still be waiting in a lot of ways. I think reading that book and basically saying, prove to me in the most respectful ways, but prove to me, he doesn't have this, you know, here are all the things that, um, line up and, it was challenging. We didn't have like a documentation of drinking. There was like a whole thing that we had to go through. And yet, um, when Charlie got his fetal alcohol diagnosis at four, uh, which was six years ago, I felt initially relieved, like, okay, there's something to call this thing. And then I felt kind of, uh, swept up in this like tornado of grief of like, okay, I'm glad that we can name this. And Wow. Like we are now on a very different parenting journey. I honestly thought, and I talk about this in the love stretch life, as you know, I, I honestly thought it was kind of easy breezy, like, oh, parenthood, you know, whoever comes to me, like that will be great. And we'll just have this like loving family and it's okay if they're, and it is okay. But like, I just was really naive. I did not think, um, I, I just didn't envision like the ways that kind of those preconceived notions that I haven't even voiced to myself were like dominoes that were kind of getting flicked down. And it wasn't just flicking one down. It felt like it was flicking a whole row of things down with that being said, obviously this is FASD hope. And there has been hope infused into the journey at different parts of the way, but I think you can't really grasp onto the fullness of hope without also acknowledging the depth of grief, right? And so there was a ton of grief um, and recognizing the level of struggle um, and the level of severity that he was impacted even at a very young age and to recognize, wow, we thought we were saying yes for 48 hours. Then we thought we were saying yes to an 18 year journey. And now we're saying yes to a heavily, heavily interdependent journey for a lifetime as parents. And um, we love our guy because without saying we are so committed to him and it's a very different journey. I'm so glad Jelani, you're talking about grief because that is that I like to say that when people message us and talk about getting the diagnosis and how did you feel and this and that, I like to say that it's grief and relief tied together. And mm. during this journey of parenting a child with an FASD, 
or any other type of brain-based diagnosis, specifically FASD though I'm talking about now, grief and relief kind of goes hand in hand. I'm, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers as I'm talking to you because it really is intertwined. You know, you have, like you said, that relief of, okay, this has a name. This is the appropriate diagnosis. All of those other 20 other diagnoses finally come together, but then there's grief and it's mm-hmm. lifelong. It's a lifelong mm-hmm. disability. So again, like you said, it goes from the 18 year parenting journey to the infinity parenting to infinity and beyond as, as yes. Woody would say, you know, yes. as yes. Yes. Would say. Yeah. it really is. This is a to infinity and beyond parenting journey, but being honest and being hopeful and having, like you said, and, and you and I talked before pa- passing that hope baton, you know, some days I can't carry it. I'm handing it to you. Mm-hmm. Some days you can't handle it. Mm-hmm. You pass it back to me. Um, it, I am so thankful for your honesty and for you recognizing, yes, there is grief in this journey, but it's still a beautiful journey. And mm-hmm. it's again, expectations. Nope. Just get rid of them. Get rid mm-hmm. of them. And so with easier that, said than done. Yes. Easier said than done. Oh my goodness. Okay. Oh yeah. They, <laughs> yeah. And they, come, they keep coming back. It's like, you have to get, you know, like a, a, mm-hmm. a ping pong paddle and just, you know, I was going to say, you know, it's, it is circular. And I feel like what I'm living and experiencing is that like the grief can be circular. I'm not exactly standing in the exact same spot that I was before. It might be just like a hair off, but I feel like, um, you know, it, it just looks and feels different. Um, you know, the core of it is still the same, but I feel like, uh, you know, it's so fascinating to me, Natalie, like sometimes I can talk about, you know, Charlie's FASD diagnosis, which by the way, he totally gives me permission to, to be talking about this aspect of his life. Um, kind of like I'm reading a menu, like very matter of fact, very matter of fact about, you know, all, all the different things that we're experiencing and the struggles we're having. And then there are other times where it just feels like a, a tidal wave kind of sneaks up on me. And I think oftentimes that comes for me. I've noticed when I am around friends who have ch- neurotypical children around Charlie's age, and they're just sharing as friends do very innocently, like, Oh, you know, my child, learn to ride a bike last weekend. Well, you know, we are still not there at 10, you know, or, or like even seeing like their, their permanent teeth coming in at different times. It's like, Oh, wow. You know, we just are so many like silly little things that just remind me like, Oh, we are on a different track. Or like when one of my friends said, isn't it easier now that we can leave our teenage children with our youngest and go out on date nights. And you know, I am grateful to be, these are, these are dear, dear friends that I've known for 20 plus years. Like I want to be in these conversations, but there are just times like that where it's not like reading a menu where it's like this sneaker tidal wave of like, I don't know if that will ever be my reality where I will leave, you know, leave one of my older children with Charlie, just because of the protectiveness I fear for both of them and the very real safety Uh, concerns. And just, so I think that there are times where I just have to realize it's not standing in the exact same spot of grief, but there, but grief is secular, um, on this journey. You know, there are, it's not a one, a one-time deal as everybody, all of your listeners know, but I think that's, that's something that I has certainly surprised me that I wouldn't have recognized without just putting one foot in front of the other, uh, how, how oftentimes that grief train will come around. That yes, that grief train. I, oh my goodness. So perfectly said, Jelana. Again, so perfectly said. 
Wow. Um, so with this conversation about FASD in mind, we know that it's estimated the statistics, I believe the latest statistics share that 80% of kids in foster care have been impacted by prenatal alcohol. They have an FASD. What advice would you offer? So I took the MAPS class, you know, eight years ago. You obviously are have not only taken the MAPS class, but you speak in MAPS classes, you, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and I know, like you said, they talk a little bit about drug exposure, nothing about alcohol, at least in my, you know, in, in the class we were in, there was nothing mentioned about, about fetal alcohol drugs. Yes. They talk about drugs. Um, and I know that I would have wanted to learn about FASD, especially knowing the prevalence. What advice would you offer to families who are considering foster care? Um, knowing what you know about FASD and knowing what we did not know when we started this journey. Okay. There's, there's many things, but I think, um, first of all, I would just say that the common kind of notion in child welfare is based on attachment, right? Like this child has these, these outward manifestation of behaviors, uh, like, you know, from trauma. And, and I think the notion oftentimes is like the give it time notion, like give it time with like enough time and structure and nurture and the right amount of whatever, like that child will kind of be able to ease into their feeling of safety and belonging. And suddenly, you know, not that that ever erases trauma, that's not a thing, but like that, that it's based on like attachment, right? Well, I am so grateful to to have learned about FASD because if I were still looking through that lens of just attachment alone, which is the primary kind of child welfare lens for looking at kids' behaviors, I would have been banging my head against the wall, right? Because if we really do believe that our interpretation is going to guide our intervention, then we better be darn sure we have the right interpretation. And so I feel pretty passionate about family, foster and adoptive families, knowing, learning about FASD. I think um, it's uh, really unfortunate. And and that's a, that's an understatement. That's a very gracious way to say it. um, That caseworkers will often ask parents about illegal drug use, but not the, you know, cheap $5 substance that you can walk into any mini mart and buy um, and really don't understand the the behavioral connections. I mean, when we look at the data of disrupted adoptions, so many kids whose adoptions disrupt likely have an FASD when we just look at the data of how many you know kids are impacted. So it needs to be talked about so much more. We need to understand the, that those behaviors are really um, a symptom. They could just be behaviors, but they could be a symptom, very easily be a symptom of so much more. And we need to know our stuff. And that that's, like I said before, nobody's going to come to you and suggest that and hand that diagnosis to you on a silver platter. It really does take some tenacity. And I think when we think about kids, especially kids who are kind of bouncing in the, in the foster care system, they really need a clear voice of somebody who's going to say like, time out, let's look at this. Let's look at, let's look at the strengths and let's look at the struggles and, and let's try to put these pieces together. Because like I said before, all of Charlie's diagnoses were true. 
those were true, but it was a sliver of the picture. It wasn't until I read Diane Malvin's book that I was like, oh, here's the lands, here's the picture on the puzzle that I, that we're, that we're building here. It's not just like one little, one little piece and another little piece. It was really, you know, uh, FASD as a whole being honestly, what's changed our ability to understand our son and to be able to accommodate him. And I think for foster and adoptive parents, uh, the accommodation just can't be there if they're not seeing the FASD. And then oftentimes just the unquantifiable ripple effects for the child and for the family, um, that come from that. It's so hard, even when you know what you're dealing with, let's just be real, that it's like almost impossible to do when you don't know what you're dealing with. Or when you're looking at this, just saying this child is willfully trying to manipulate me. He's so defiant. He never listens. I mean, just all the things that just need a a reframe around them. Um, So I'm really honest with, with families about, you know, knowing your stuff on trauma, but also educate self-educating yourself on FASD, because as you said, Natalie, it's not talked about. And even if it's given kind of an honorable mention, it's like three minutes, you know, and, and those of us that have been living this journey know that this is like a lifelong education path for us. Um, and I still would never claim to, to know all the things and, um, you know, I'm six years into, you know, reading so many books and attending so many workshops. And I still feel like there will never be a time that I've arrived. There's always more to learn about the unique way my son's brain works. Absolutely. And reframe, reframe. I love that. Yes, we have to reframe. We are going to end part one of our conversation with Jelana Goebel here. And thanks for listening and catch part two of this conversation coming right up. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Becchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and review and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us again next week and remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.